All right, well, welcome back, Pastor Evan. We have uh, concubines being chopped up and sent across the nation of Israel, is the passage that was provided to me. And of course, we planned for, uh, for me to come back and do this passage. But it is a heavy passage, and so we're going to be in Judges 19 through 21. We're going to kind of do like a pretty quick flyby of these three chapters. Uh, so we're not going to read every verse, and you can go back later and read them yourselves if you would like. But the sermon title today is going to be on the screen, Just When You Think It Can't Get Any Worse. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. And so we have this thing, this kind of idea in culture that when bad things happen, they tend to pile on. So I thought we'd have a little bit of fun here, and maybe you could help me finish these sentences. So first, an easy one. When it rains, it what? Pours. Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong, will go wrong. I read an atheist actually over sabbatical. I, was, I read an atheist writer who actually lives by that motto. And I thought that was, sounds like a really depressing way to live your life is by Murphy's Law. But that was his choice, not mine. Or maybe you've heard something like this. Something my aunt used to say is bad things happen in what number? Does anybody know? Threes. So your dog runs away your wife leaves you, and your truck breaks down. Not only is it a good country song, but it's this idea that bad things happen in threes before they turn good again. And what we see from the story of Israel in Judges, it goes something like that. It goes from good to okay to what Pastor Kyle talked about last week, which was like kind of bad to horrific. And so when, well, you think, well, just when, you're reading, the, you're reading Judges and you're going, just when you think it can't get any worse, the author of Judges like goes, hold on. It does. Israel's morality has reached its lowest point. They become radically corrupted. And we are made to wonder where God's grace is in all of this. And what I want for you today, what I want you to take away is that radical corruption can't stop God's grace. No matter how dark life is, no matter how dark the world is, like cracks in a wall or just the part of the shade that isn't covered, the part of the window that isn't covered by the shade, light just peeks through. God's grace starts to break through despite the corruption that's around us. So I want to talk about today radical corruption, but I want to follow it up by talking about radical grace. So radical corruption and radical grace. So let's jump into chapter 19 at the beginning. In those days when there was no king in Israel... All right, so we're still in the gray zone, right? If you look, think back to the sermon, the first sermon in Judges, we talked about the gray zone. We're still in the gray zone between Moses and Joshua and the kings. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, which is uh, one of the tribes of Israel, who took to himself a concubine. Now, a concubine, it was a common thing in ancient cultures to take uh, you, uh, like a primary wife, and then you would have like secondary wives or like second-class wives, and a concubine is kind of like a second-class wife. 
took her from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there four months. We don't really know why the concubine was unfaithful, but it seems most commentators think that it's not necessarily infidelity that the she is unfaithful because she leaves her husband's house. And she goes back with her parents. And what ends up happening is that the Levite takes his sweet old time to go get his concubine. He takes like four months to go get his concubine. And when he gets to his father-in-law's house, his father-in-law comes out and he greets him kindly. And he invites him to eat and drink and hang out with him for three days. So teenagers, young people... In the ancient world, hospitality was huge. If someone didn't have a place to stay, you would invite them to stay at your house. And not just your friends, but strangers too. Now, I'm not recommending you teenagers to invite strangers into your parents' homes. But what I am saying is, it was a huge thing. This is what you did. And I want you to keep that in mind as we move forward. But after three days, what happens is the Levite's father-in-law convinces him to stay longer. And about like the fifth day, the Levite is kind of fed up with it. He's like, all right, I got to get going. I got to get back home. I don't know if he has work to do or what what he's going to do. But he says, I got to get out of here. But his father-in-law kind of encourages him to stay until evening. And that's a foolish decision. He ends up staying till evening. And then he's like, I got to go. And he just goes. And it's a, it's a fool's decision because if you think about, right, young people, if you think about the ancient world before streetlights, to travel at nighttime was extremely dangerous. Like even the pioneers and the early settlers in the United States, they would go to bed like as soon as it got dark. As soon as it got dark. There's no lights. There's no iPhone to like read a book while you're in your bed. It's dark. That's it. So it's extremely dangerous. You could get mugged or worse. But he goes anyway. So this ends up being a fool's decision. So while they're traveling home, he decides to stay overnight at a nearby town. And he actually bypasses a pagan town. And he's like, they're not going to be friendlies. We're going to keep moving on. We'll go to a friendly town. We're going to go to where the people of Israel are. And they end up in Gibeah, a Benjamite town. And the author wants you to see kind of the irony of that. He skips over a pagan town thinking that that would be a problem, and he goes to the people of Israel thinking that's going to work out just fine. And verse nine, chapter 19, verse 16, here's what happens. They end up in the town square of Gibeah, and behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim. All right, he's from the same place that the Levite is from. And he was sojourning in Gibeah. So he's a visitor too. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And so the Levite tells him and then pick up in verse 20. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. All right, so you should be like, hold a second, why did he just say, do not spend the night in the square? So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So there's, if you're an ancient Israelite, there's like red flags all over this story. All over this story. Leaving at night, 
go, skipping a town, a pagan town to go to an Israelite town. He's in the square. And if, if it's true that hospitality is like this huge thing in the ancient culture, why is it that an old man who's not from that town is the one who invites the Levite in? So if you're an ancient Israelite, you're reading this like, whoa, red flag. A visitor should not be inviting another visitor in. We should have, our own people should have done that. And then, as I said, why is the man, the old man, telling the Levite not to spend the night in the town square? So if you're an ancient Israelite, you're going, something's not right about this story. You know what? This is kind of starting to sound like, oh, no. This is starting to sound like Sodom. See, in Genesis 19, two angels disguised as men enter Sodom in the evening and they settle down in the town square. Then Lot, who's not originally from Sodom, convinces the angels to stay with him. If you're an ancient Israelite up to this point, you're like, but that's Sodom, right? Surely the story will go differently with God's people. So just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Verse 22, And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. So like Sodom, the men of the town come, and what they want to do, and excuse me, this this is the only way to put it, they want to gang rape someone of the same sex. And as we read earlier, as Jim read, the women are offered by the host to be gang raped instead of the man. Just like Lot offers his daughters to the men of Sodom. And like Sodom, the men of Gibeah aren't satisfied with that. They don't want the daughters. They don't want, in Sodom, they don't want the daughters. In Gibeah, they don't want the daughter and the concubine. They want the man. And, uh, but unlike Sodom, there's no angels there to strike the men of the city with blindness. So the concubine is thrown to the mob and is sexually assaulted and abused all night. And here's what the author wants you to see. He wants us to see. Israel has become so radically corrupt that this is where doing what was right in your own eyes gets you. Israel has become worse than Sodom. They've become Sodom 2.0. And we talk about radical corruption is what theologians have referred to as total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity explains that because of Adam as the head of the human race who sinned in Genesis 3, all of us are born with the stain of original sin. And total depravity doesn't necessarily mean that no one has any redeeming qualities. Sometimes when we talk about total depravity, the word total can make you think that no one has redeeming qualities. Like, for instance, for as bad as he was, I'm sure Hitler played fetch with his dog. As bad as they are, I'm sure that members of the KKK love their moms. So it's not that they have no redeeming qualities. Rather, it's that total depravity means that sin corrupts your entire person and that your will is enslaved 
to evil impulses and desires. And without God's grace in Jesus' death on our behalf, our wills will remain enslaved. And Gibeah's story could be your own story. The people of Gibeah could be your church. And so what happens is the Levite gets this, he gets a tight eight hours of sleep. Doesn't even miss a wink of sleep over his concubine. And he wakes up, he grabs his coffee, and he goes outside to greet the day. And he sees his concubine laying at the brink of death on the doorstep. And you catch how callously he tells her to get up. He says, get up, let's be going. He doesn't say, hey, sorry, babe, like, it was foolish of me. You have every right to be angry, which would easily be like the worst apology for, for that type of thing. He says nothing. He says, get up. We're going to be going. But then there's no answer. Verse 28. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. So he takes her home. He cuts her up into pieces, and then he FedExes her across the nation of Israel to the 12 tribes of Israel. And verse 30 of 19 says, All who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that all the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So what happens is all of Israel, except the Benjaminites, obviously, come together. So in Judges 1, if you think back to Judges 1, Israel gathers together for holy war. In Judges 20, they're gathering together for civil war. And they asked the Levite what happened. Now listen to how the Levite tells this story. I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend that night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the hill country, excuse me, all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed an abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice, counsel here. Did you catch that? That the Levite ends up manipulating the mob with half-truths. He never mentions his own foolish decision to leave at nighttime that forced them to stay in Gibeah. He doesn't mention that he tossed his concubine, or allowed his concubine to be tossed to the crowd, to the mob, to be assaulted and abused. Or get this, how he may have been the one who actually killed her and then chopped her up, or when he chopped her up. It never says she died. He tells us she died. When did that happen? He didn't say. See, radical corruption made the Benjaminites, and even the Levite, callous to immorality. Like, I'm sure the Benjaminites didn't wake up one day and decide that one of their towns would be known for sexually assaulting visitors. I'm sure they didn't wake up one day and just say, we're going to do that. But one unrepented sin leads to another, as we see in the book of Judges, and they become callous to their immorality. They keep doing what's right in their own eyes day after day after day, and this is what they get. And I'm sure the Levite didn't wake up one day and decide that it would be okay to allow his concubine to be assaulted and abused all night. And when she has been, to cut her up and send her across Israel. 
but one unrepented sin led to another, then to another, then to another, and he became callous to immorality. And when we become callous to immorality, it's often the most vulnerable that get the most hurt. And in ancient societies, a lot of times that's women. When we become callous to immorality, the most vulnerable people in our societies, in our communities, in our neighborhoods are the ones who get the most hurt. Men with callous attitudes towards promiscuity leaves many women pregnant and alone who then feel like they have no choice but to get an abortion, which threatens another vulnerable population, children. Callous attitudes toward greed grows the gap between the upper and lower classes. And what that ends up doing is it leads to higher crime rates, and then our neighborhoods become more and more dangerous. For who? Children and women and the elderly. Or callous attitudes towards selfishness means that we all look out for our own interests and we look out for our own households and our own families and our own things. And what ends up happening is that people, particularly the elderly, are left to figure out life on their own in their golden years. You don't wake up one day and get like this. But if you allow the radical corruption that is in you and you allow sin to continue without any repentance or life change, you'll become more and more callous to it because you've learned to live with it. And when you do, it doesn't hurt just you. It hurts everyone around you. Like, think about it. Being callous towards gossip and having continuous gossip in your church hurts the people you talk about, but also destroys the community. It can't be a place of trust anymore. So the most vulnerable, when they walk into your doors, they feel like it's not a safe place. Because everybody's talking about each other. Isn't that the way gossip works too? You're like, all right, if they're talking about them, I know they're talking about me too. So this is not a safe place for me. Or viewing sexually explicit material online not only builds addictive tendencies in your brain, as science tells us, but it puts unrealistic expectations on your wife and keeps the women on the other side of the screen trapped in that lifestyle. Calloused immorality, being callous to immorality, has real-life implications real-world implications, and without Christ, radical corruption runs rampant. And the most vulnerable will be the, the most hurt, and our, will, our world will become like Sodom, or worse, our churches will become like Gibeah. But there's another product of radical corruption, not just calloused immorality, but ungodly righteousness. Look at ungodly righteousness, picking up in verse 12 of chapter 20. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voices of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel. So first, listen. The rest of Israel, they're following God's law in Deuteronomy. God's law in Deuteronomy said that sexual offenders should be put to death. So they're coming and saying, this is what God's law says. We're coming to wipe out these guys because we have to purge this evil from Israel. But what does Benjamin do? Benjaminites do? What do they do? Sorry, you can't do that. We're not going to let you. 
And so Israel, what they do, they seek God before they go attack the Benjaminites. And so God, Israel goes before God, and like Judges chapter 1, God tells them to send Judah up first. So, okay, so far, not so bad. They're doing kind of okay. But interestingly, what happens in the story is that God sends them into battle two times, and they lose both times. And so in verse 26, here's what happens. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. And they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So there's a third battle. And this time, Israel, what they do is they set an ambush for Benjamin, and they win. You can read all about this later. But the question you may be asking, and I'm always grateful when you're asking questions that I already answered in my notes. You might be asking, why would God let them lose two times before winning? Why not just let them win right away? And here's why. And this is what the story is trying to tell us. Because God was using all of Israel to judge all of Israel. He's using the Benjamites to judge the rest of Israel for doing things that are right in their own eyes. And he's using the the other 11 tribes to judge Benjamin. See, Israel has fallen into ungodly righteousness. See, where godly righteousness is motivated by the right object, like God's grace in the work of Jesus, and it's focused on the right outcome to bring God glory, un Godly righteousness is motivated by the wrong object and focused on the wrong outcome. The wrong object and the wrong outcome. See, the Benjaminites are motivated by what? Tribal loyalty. Because they knew what the members of their tribe did and how sinful that was and how God commanded that those kinds of people need to be purged from Israel. But what they were focused on was maintaining their tribe's brand to do anything about it. The rest of Israel is motivated by the impulse of the mob, and they're focused on revenge. Because when you look at verse 37, look what happens. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed after Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck, what? All of the city with the edge of the sword. In other words, Israel killed more Benjaminites than God's law required them to. They went above and beyond. Instead of putting just the guilty parties to death, they kill the guilty and the innocent parties. Men, women, and children. And only 600 Benjaminite warriors are left. And they escape from their vengeance. And what started okay turned quickly into ungodly righteousness. And just when you think it can't get worse, 21.1 says that, we, that Israel makes this wife oath before the war. They say, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. See, God designed for there to be 12 tribes of Israel, and that's really important. That's going to be really important in the Gospels as Jesus has 12 disciples. That's not a mistake. But without wives, the Benjaminites 
would naturally go away. And so there'd be 11 tribes. And so they all go, well, that's going to be a problem. And instead of going to God for the solution, what they do is they try to fix it on their own. So what they do is say, okay, but didn't we make another oath? We made this battle oath where we promised each other that whoever doesn't fight the Benjaminites will destroy those people. So they find one town in all of Israel that didn't do that. They didn't help out. So they go and kill everyone in that town except the virgin women. But guess what? That, only, that leaves them short 200 wives. So when you think it can't get any worse, just when you think it can't, instead of going God, to God for a solution, the mob tells the remaining Benjaminites, the other 200 Benjaminites, hey, go to Shiloh, the tribe of Shiloh, and steal daughters for yourselves. Traffic women out of that tribe. And they say, verse 22 of chapter 21, and when their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, this is actually really funny and I'll explain in a moment, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did we, you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and they took the, their wives according to their number from the dancers, the, the daughters of Shiloh, whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. What they're saying is, hey, when their dads and their brothers come and they complain about us trafficking women from their tribe for the Benjaminites, we'll tell them, yeah, we know we stole them. We know we stole these women, but we did it for you. If you gave them to us, we would have to kill you because you said, along with us, you made the wife oath that you're not going to give your women to the Benjaminites. So we took them from you and gave your daughters to the Benjaminites. You're welcome. And they all just go home. Like, that's like, like verse 24, they just go home. Okay. Do you see the ungodly righteousness? It's not motivated by God's grace. It's not focused on bringing God glory. It's motivated by these foolish promises they couldn't really keep. And it's focused on saving face. See, ungodly righteousness, which we sometimes call legalism, is as much of a product of radical corruption as calloused immorality. Ungodly righteousness is like putting lipstick on a pig, or as Jesus puts it, putting a fresh coat of paint on a tomb. No matter how much you dress those things up, a pig is still a pig. A tomb still has dead bodies in it, still a tomb. But ungodly righteousness can be very deceptive. On the surface, it looks righteous but it's radical corruption at work under the surface. For example, ungodly righteousness will make you overly loyal to your tribe, your religious tribe, your ethnic tribe, your political tribe, even if they're wrong. So, for instance, you can't point out when a church or a pastor ignored abuse because you need to maintain the brand of the church or the brand of the pastor. 
or ungodly righteousness will make you join in with the mob. Even if the mob is being manipulated by half-truths. So even if all evidence points to the opposite, to the contrary, you'll double down on your own opinion about whatever happened or whatever that thing is. Ungodly righteousness will make you make promises you can't keep. So instead of going to God to help you fight sin, you'll promise yourself you won't commit that sin again in your own strength, only to fail again and again and again by your own strength. See, no matter how, no matter how you dress it up, ungodly righteousness is still ungodly. It's a product of radical corruption, just like callous immorality. And if nothing is done about radical corruption, it's going to be the same old same old thing, time and time again, and just when you think it can't get any worse, it will. But God's radical grace is still at work in this story. It's still peeking through the cracks. Chapter 20, verse 27, says, for the, in this parenthetical statement, see, I was kind of just peeking through the cracks. For the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. God's presence was still with his people through the Ark of the Covenant. That's what it's saying. God's still there. And Phinehas, a godly priest, the grandson of Aaron, Moses' brother, is there. So what does it tell us? Real quick, Judges 19 through 21 took place at the same time as Judges 1 through 2. See, the, the author of Judges has set up the book theologically, not chronologically, to show us that this wasn't a steady, slow decline to radical corruption. This was a rapid one. Remember, two generations after Joshua, they don't know the Lord anymore in Judges chapter 2. Here they are, two generations after Joshua, as Sodom 2.0. But as radically corrupt as Israel was, God's grace was equally radical. Because God should have wiped them out at that point. The fact that Israel even exists is a miracle. This is happening, it's so subtle, it's this parenthetical statement that we might just miss it if we're not paying attention. That despite how radically corrupt Israel had become, God was still with them in the sign of his presence in the ark. And he still desired to forgive them through his priest, to offer sacrifices to atone for their sins. That's what priests did. But Israel, what happens in their story, they get worse and they get worse and they get worse and they get worse. So God has to intervene in his grace. And God gets so radical in his grace that he gives them a greater sign of his presence and a great high priest to atone for their sins in Jesus, who is God the Son. God's so radical in his grace that he himself comes into the darkness and radical corruption and takes on human flesh, and he died and he rose again for all of us who put our faith and trust in him. And we can now be freed from radical corruption 
And God in his radical grace forgives us because of what Jesus did for us. Jesus' righteousness is godly righteousness. So we're forgiven because of his righteousness, not our own. So when you look around the world today and you see all radical corruption, you might see callous attitudes towards immorality or ungodly righteousness, and you think it just can't get any worse than this, remember that God's grace is breaking through. And it breaks through, and sometimes you have to look for it. And that even for you, no matter how callous you become toward your own immorality or how ungodly you become in your own righteousness, God in Jesus wants to be with you and forgive you. And he frees you from bondage to radical corruption so that you can live differently. So this week, I I challenge you to to take these questions with you. Ask yourself, journal about this. Where is God's radical grace breaking through the radical corruption that I see around me? And ask, what sin in my own life am I callous toward that's hurting those around me? Is it gossip? Is it your anger? Is it what you're looking at online? Is it greed? And is my righteousness motivated by God's grace in Jesus and focused on his glory? Or is it focused on something else and motivated by something else? Like tribal loyalties or saving face or protecting my brand. And however you answer those questions, I challenge you to repent. That's what I want for you and I want for me is to repent and ask God to forgive us of our sins and shortcomings and embrace his radical grace for you, for me, and be freed and to start taking steps to live differently. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that, not, that in radical corruption, You don't leave us to ourselves, but your radical grace breaks through. And we thank you for how that has happened in Jesus. And we pray that we would see that day in and day out and be reminded of it. Show us the ways, Lord, where we're callous towards our immorality or where our righteousness is motivated not by your grace and your glory and focused on your glory, but it's motivated and focused on something else. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And as we come to the table, we're reminded of your greatest act of radical grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen.